Hey everyone and welcome beautiful human to another episode of Security Headlines. My name is Philip and I will be your guide throughout this journey. But before we start the episode, I want to let you know that Security Headline is now officially on Reddit. So if you're a Reddit user, please join the Security Headline subreddit. It's Security Headlines in one word with small letters and no space between. In today's episode, we will deep dive into a very interesting part of security. I would like to quote Theo Durant, who is the creator of OpenBSD, when he said that, we know that a lot of software is broken and what we at the OpenBSD project are trying to focus on is security mitigation, little tools that help the program to become more secure and better. Basically what he's saying is that he wants to create this platform that helps the program get more secure. So security mitigation is a huge thing in our programs today. When Theo gave a talk about OpenBSD's new security mitigation called Pledge, he talked about the recent paper that he read, which was called Hacking Blindly, which mostly focused on a new technique called BROP, Blind Return Oriented Programming. With me today is another great mind that has also deep dived in security mitigation and memory attacks, and he written a paper about it. By using security mitigation that are built into the operating system, such as write, SOAR execute, address space random, address space layer randomization, and stack generate, your program are a lot harder to, for a malicious party to break. With me today is the author of the advanced stack canary solution, DynaGuard. It's the mind behind DynaGuard. It's Theophilus Petsios. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Philip. I'm excited to be here and kind of talk about uh, this work and kind of other topics as well. Super. So before we jump into DynaGuard and all of that stuff, I want to know, how was your journey into hacking and security and how did you end up here? Uh, yeah, great question. I wasn't kind of uh, very much into the space to begin with. So my undergrad was actually in electrical engineering and I, I was tipping my toes into computer science at the time. But then I was really interested in kind of like really understanding the space of, you know, security and how people, you know, write exploits, how do you defend against exploits? And I decided, okay, I'm going to travel to the US and I'm going to work on the topic and kind of do a deep dive there. So actually, I think this work around stack analysis, the first work I did, like I showed up as a you know early PhD student at Columbia, and actually this work was a collaboration heavily with Vasilius Kemerlis. It was it was also his idea, like on the whole project, and uh, who's now a professor at Brown University, and then Michalis Polikarnakis, who's now at Stony Brook. So yeah, basically we're seeing what's what's what, and I was kind of diving deeper into systems, uh, like. Before I started this work, I, I barely remembered C. Like I didn't know what, you know, a pointer to void was or something like that. Yeah. But then I really focused on, you know, system security and did, did a bunch of work on hardening and then compilers. And then I switched to kind of fuzzing and doing more application application security work. Was there any so, light bulb moment that really speaked your interest or piqued your interest for security? I think it was mainly kind of this excitement about the fact that you can, you know, circumvent a bunch of the mitigations that are in place or tweak programs so that they perform another way. Like, I think for me, it was the typical web, you know, SQL injection stuff where I was playing around. Like, I, I think I got my first computer in 2005 and then I 
actually started using it as a computer a couple of years later because at the time I wasn't really doing much with it. But then when I started like really using it, I was like, oh, let me try this web attack. And, you know, things were pretty open at the time. So it was pretty easy to find, you know, a completely broken website. I mean, it technically still is, but the bar is a, a bit higher. Yeah. And hopefully that's what all these defenses are about, where you kind of try to raise the bar for attackers. And it'd be interesting to kind of talk about where things are heading with, you know, memory safe languages versus unsafe languages and hardening mitigations, because that's kind of a big debate right now in the scene where some people are kind of saying, okay, this stuff shouldn't even be relevant uh, because we should be moving to Rust or something. And, you know, there are some other folks who say that, okay, C and C++ will always be around, so we might as well do something about it. It's a very interesting debate. I don't think C or C++ will never uh, will never disappear, but uh, the C++ space is moving extremely fast. And I also think it's a very interesting approach that a lot of people, they say, okay, we will use linters and then we will have this giant database with common uh, common patterns. Uh, in order to catch like SQL injections and stuff like that. But that's also like, that's, you know, it's a cat and, uh, cat and mouse game because, you know, you never run out of bad practices, so to say. And uh, yeah, it's a very interesting field. Yeah, I mean, the situation is not really getting better, right? So we need to rely on the tools to make things better for us. I mean, if you see the trends of CVEs over the years in well-used repositories, they're not really decreasing and had actually done like a, a small scale study a couple of years ago where and I, it's actually published like i was in a startup in new york called capsulate and i had done this study on on a bunch of linux distributions where i said like okay what are the hardening mitigations and okay. you could see that even for simple things like stack canaries the adoption for some of the major races is not at 100 percent and likewise, the, the, the CVs that show up around memory corruption are still a big thing. Like I think Microsoft had put out this um, presentation, some, some folk from Microsoft that was saying that, okay, about 70% of the issues are memory corruption issues. And yeah, I do agree that I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we're going to move away from the unsafe languages at some point. Yeah. The question is when and how do you smooth out this transition and what's the best way forward you mentioned there that you've been doing some CVE research for the, the top distos. What, what were some kind of fun things that you found there? So let me actually bring that up and look at the numbers. Like my argument was that CVEs are not necessarily a good indicator because one issue with CVEs is that you don't necessarily know whether something is, is really an exploitable vulnerability versus not. But I guess one one point across the board is that we're not really doing better as a community when it comes to improving, you know, the the developer's mindset necessarily, right? So we need the tools and the compilers and the operating system to kind of solve these issues out of the book. So, you know, you have ROP, for example, if we have some sort of hardware mechanism where we just eliminate ROP uh, one way or another, then, you know, we can switch to side channels or something else, but at least you, you solve that problem. And I think something that's really needed in terms of all the hardening mitigations is for the solution to kind of make sure it eliminates this particular class of vulnerabilities completely. 
Uh, and one of the issues with Dynagard is that there was this, there, there, has, there had been a research paper that had come out that was offering kind of an impartial solution to the problem. So mm-hmm. you have the stack canaries, which are fine. I mean, they, they're kind of a small thing, but then you had this problem with the whole copy and write mechanism where if you had the process and the process was forked, essentially, you know, the memory contents would remain the same. So if you had a fork and there wasn't an exec V after that, essentially all, all the entropy in the child process was the same. And that included kind of the, the stack cookies that would prevent the, the stack overflows. And then there was a research paper that had come out that was doing kind of an impartial solution. So their solution was broken. And mm-hmm. to me, that was kind of a bad thing in the sense that hardening by default is broken in the sense that it doesn't give you formal assurance that you know nothing is exploitable. It just makes things harder. And now it's tricky if you start introducing hardening mechanisms that they're not even doing what they're promising to do. Like it's fine if you know you have control flow integrity which doesn't protect about you know doesn't protect data flow integrity. Yep. And that's within the threat model. But if you have control flow integrity which doesn't even offer control flow integrity, yeah, then why even good. use it? Yeah. Yeah, and then it's a matter of it's a matter of overhead, right? The, because when you don't have strong guarantees, then you need to make sure that the performance overhead induced is not going to be prohibitive for people to use it. And to me, the stack analysis use case was was interesting in the sense that we have a very widely deployed mechanism that had a couple of limitations, and it seemed that it's super f- cheap to fix it at the compiler level straight up. Let's jump into Dynagord, but let's first, what inspired you to do Dynagord and what kind of made the idea happen? So I think there's perhaps this is not a very interesting uh, story in the sense that, you know, it was essentially Vasilis's idea. Okay. Vasilis Kemerlis was a co-author in the paper. So he was like, oh, perhaps we should do something on this, which is both an attack and a defense paper. And... You know, I had kind of left it, the project a bit stale for a while, and then Blind Rob came out, mm-hmm. and Blind Rob was essentially exploiting this issue, where essentially the, the whole stack protection mechanism is a hardening defense against stack buffer overflows. So essentially, when when you have a buffer and you overflow it, uh, you can override the return address, and you place a small cookie before that, so that if that cookie gets overwritten you kind of detect that, okay, something something weird has happened there. And this cookie is not known to the attacker, so it's stored in a, in a secret area in memory. So Blindrop was actually exploiting this flow in the copy and write mechanism where if you have a forking application like a server, uh, because each child process would get the exact same copy of the Canary cookie, you could essentially try one by one each of the bytes and brute force the value because if you have a server, you would have children responding all the time. Yeah. And that was a, a very, very cool attack because there was a bunch of like other things that, uh, you know, it was, were pretty novel about it. So that attack came out and we're like, okay, we need to do it because somebody else will come up with, uh, like, you know, that was, that's, that was an idea that um, we were discussing and we just never got to, to sit down and implement it. So once the paper came out, we said, okay, let's sit down and do that. So not not much of a great story on the inspiration there. Yes, one theme, a bunch of this is probably 
very well known in the underground scene for quite some time, but then academia was kind of late to pick up on, on some of the, the defenses. So a bunch of the rope papers, you know, possibly they were used by folks in the wild uh, quite some time in the and you know, doing some experiments and saying, okay, here's the overhead, here's what it took. It's also useful in terms of advancing the space in as a teaching material and kind of as a stepping stone where others can build on top of the same idea. So uh, we said, you know, it's still useful to to, to do this mm-hmm. uh, primarily because this is a very widely used thing and it hasn't been fixed. And it would also be nice to kind of document the process and use it as a teaching experience as well. And actually, I think this paper has been used by a couple of schools to as, as supplementary material around stack, stack smashing attacks, etc., because it kind of outlines how everything works. So doing research about this, you kind of touched on that. Well, was it hard to find other people or was it mostly you, you go and you go to the more uh, underground thing and then you look at uh, exploits that are maybe not public? And uh, how was the research uh, in order to find? Uh... So the research, that wasn't, that wasn't the, no, I don't think it was really necessary to like look around because it wasn't so much the um, the unknowns of it. It was mainly like kind of diving deeper and, Okay, spinning up GDB, making sure you you know you understand things properly, okay, and especially right. the corner cases. So, for me, you know, we we implemented kind of a a, a simple pass in in GCC where you know we would instrument all the locations where canary cookies are stored, and then we were thinking, okay, how can we come up with a mechanism that's fail-proof so that if uh, child processes spawned, you know, these have a different value. And then you would have to get a bit into the intricacies of like the exception handling mechanism, cases where you have, you know, set jumps, log jumps, uh, these sort of tricky cases where you have to have a program. There is this corner case that I hadn't really thought of. So it was mainly several iterations of Trial and trial error, and, error yeah. and then kind of bringing the performance down as much as possible. like being able to make it as fast as possible with the least instructions. So we ended up doing a hack for this. Essentially, mm-hmm. the idea would be that we wanted to we wanted to have a new, a fresh canary for each child process. Now, the problem is if you just refresh the canary when you spin a child, if you end up in the frames of the parent process, you are going to crash now because the canary is stored in the secret place in the thread local storage. Yep. And... Essentially, you cannot have different values in the frames of the process and a different value in the thread local storage because that's a single value that you always use. So I guess the the most tricky part in kind of making this work was figuring out how we're going to keep track of all the addresses where canaries are stored so that we can update them at runtime. And we essentially found some memory region in the thread local storage that was unused. And we used you know, this this memory kind of as an index to an array where we actually stored all the canary values. So we said, okay, nobody's using these bytes right here. Let's just YOLO use them as an index in the hope that, you know, nobody else is using this. And we're going to use this kind of as our scratch register where we can have 
a, a pointer to an array where we'll actually keep all the real addresses of the canaries at runtime. Oh, nice. And then we'll just instrument things um, during compilation so that you know every time you are to push a new uh, frame, you do the bookkeeping appropriately. And every time you need it to unwind, you now have all the information in place. Hmm. So that, that was kind of the, the, the hack of the whole research that really made the change. Because otherwise it would be tricky, right? You would have to have different constructs and it wouldn't be as efficient. But uh, I guess the, the bigger theme that kind of emerges here is the whole problem with the copy and write mechanism and entropy in general. Like there have been cases with pseudo-random number generators where this has been a problem and it would be nice to kind of have it be more formally addressed by, you know, either the operating system or the compiler toolchains that, you know, just adopt this and are thinking about these cases when, whenever, you know, there is a forking scenario. Hasn't there been a lot of discussions about this? Because, you know, Stack and Ares, they've been around since, I don't know, 2005, is it? Or 2003 or something? They've been around for a while. So there must be a lot of, there's been a lot of adoption and there must be at least a lot of discussions around this. I think there has been. The question is mainly, in my mind, you know, what is the real value of changing all the pipelines? And what is the overhead there in terms of, you know, backwards compatibility, making sure that you run extensive testing on everything? In my mind, for compilers, it should be pretty cheap. But if you think about the general picture, right, stack canaries are just one small stone in a huge beach kind of getting hit by the waves. So it's, yeah. I mean, it's one mitigation. Uh, it's what, what kind of folks envisioned was that, okay, what we have is probably good enough for 95% of the cases or 99% of the cases. And for folks who are really critical can have, uh, you know, some other hardening mitigations on top of that. Because if you think about it, if you think about the things that have really been adopted at scale, it's really n non-executable stacks and non-executable memory, ASLR and stack canaries. And this is because they're all super. Like I was looking into the stack clash mitigations. The adoption is borderline 1%. It's actually, it's like even than, even less than that, it's like 0.01% on most cases. Or you look at things like CFI. And the reason is that if you have a kind of a determined attacker, you know, you do raise the bar, but at what cost? And, yeah, you know, if you're, if you're telling somebody that, yeah, if you're telling somebody they have to pay like 10% their their budget in in dollars or, or euros or whatever. It's not so popular, no. Yeah, it's kind of hard to kind of sell this. But I mean, I was, I was actually hoping that particularly for DynaGuard, compilers would push that. Um, it's not that I actively tried uh, to, you know, open up a, a request and submit a patch for that in GCC or CLAG or something, but it's something that I could see being adopted. I don't think there's anything prohibitive there in kind of like supporting an unbroken stack class mitigation. Sorry, uh, stack smashing. 
how has uh, the adoption of DynaGuard been? Because you wrote, I assume you, you wrote some proof of concept code, you got it working with GCC. How has, has it been implemented in production, anything? Or uh, are people using it? Um, so we gave two variants of the tool out. The one was on, on top of GCC. Okay. And that's very easy. Basically, you could, you just compile you know, you, you compile the source that is on GitHub and then you use your GCC and then you can compile your application using the DynaGuard enabled uh, stack smashing protection. Oh, nice. And then we also gave um, a dynamic binary instrumentation version, which is on top of PIN. If you, if you are familiar with that, it's like Intel's dynamic binary instrumentation framework where essentially you have, you can take a binary that's already compiled and then you can run it on top of PIN and okay. you have the protection. And there, it, it only makes sense if you have pin running already offering other mitigations. So there, there is a bunch of research, and I think there's a couple of like um, production tools that do uh, rely on dynamic binary instrumentation as a hardening mitigation or you know to do monitoring and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the overhead there is pretty big and it's actually prohibitively big unless you're uh, talking about like very, very critical code that cannot be protected by some other means. And so you're talking for more than a hundred percent overhead, but if you already have, you know, oh, something wow. like that in place. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty rough because you, you, you execute everything. Um, essentially it goes through an, another uh, level of indirection, right? Like all the instructions first execute in the dynamic binary instrumentation framework before they actually uh, make it to the real execution. So it's kind of like you're monitoring everything. So if you have a, if you have some sort of implementation like that already, it makes sense to, to do that and you know add yep. Dynagar on top of it because the overhead would be zero basically on top of whatever else you have. Do you know any cases that uh, people have done so, used DynaGuard? Uh, that's a good question. I think I think it was used at a couple of, uh, you know, DARPA projects and DARPA evaluations where they were kind okay. of evaluating, uh, you know, novel research for kind of black box uh, hardening. But other than that, I'm not aware of commercial tools, but I haven't really looked into this, frankly. Uh, once it was out that Kind of, and I think the same goes for for most of my open source, you know, projects on security. You know, as soon as the tool is out, I kind of let it be. The code is there, like people can can use it. But yeah, I think if I if I'm actually gonna actively drive adoption for something, I'm probably gonna be on on the commercial space or something. So how come you ran across a paper? Was it through the blind rope? Yes. Uh, the blind rope, and I was also looking because you have quoted a very nice exploit in the the engines exploit mm -hmm. uh, in the paper. I, I really enjoy that exploit. Reading that, um, and for all our listeners, that uh, maybe you can give some context on the on the engines exploit if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, a Greek guy, I think, uh, created it. Nicholas Rangos, He's a pretty cool guy. Uh, writes a lot of uh, writes a lot of cool stuff. He also goes by the name of King Cope. Brilliant mind. Yeah, I th uh, I think the the blind drop was by Andrea Brit uh, Bitao, which was like back from some folks from Stanford, like the official paper that I was 
quoting. Um, yeah, that's uh, and unfortunately, I've been in contact with the with the guys that wrote that paper, and uh, unfortunately, Andrea Bitau is no longer with us. He passed away. Yeah, the there was a motor, tragic accident that he had. Motorcycle accident. So. Or yeah, that was very unfortunate. And actually, there was a there was a research paper that came out recently on kind of the, the equivalent of blind drop, but using side channels. Oh, cool! Uh, which was in memory of uh, Andrea from 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 this. Yeah, so that that was though a very 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 cool uh, exploit because essentially, you know, you could exploit kind of a memory disclosure issue and. Kind of build thing, build their own payload on the fly without really knowing anything. Hey everyone, this is Philip, your host. I just wanted to take a short break here and tell you about this new cool website that I think you should bookmark called Rust.Careers. Are you a company currently looking for awesome Rust engineers for your next project? Or are you a developer that's been hacking a bit Rust on the spare time and maybe want to work with Rust full time? Head then over to Rust.Careers, the job board for all the Rust developers and Rust hackers. Bookmark Rust.Careers. And now, back to the show. Else. Also a very good example of why even just a small thing, like you know, this very, very humble hardening mitigation, if it was, in pre- if it was present, it would have rendered you know, a much more complex and sophisticated attack infeasible. So I think this is one of the very nice cases where you say, okay, what do we really gain? Well, you wouldn't have this attack if this issue wasn't there in the first place, because if you are to construct like a very complex thing, sometimes you just need small stepping stones. And even if one stepping stone is not there, perhaps it's either prohibited completely or you have to go through a completely different route, which is much harder and elaborate. Yeah, that's cool. And they also published what I really enjoyed is the published uh, proof of concept exploit around uh, along with the, yes with the paper. Not a lot of people do that, unfortunately. So they're like, here here is the black. They also published on binary. So they're like, okay, here's a proof of concept exploit, and here's a binary. Go go play around with it. So I really enjoy that part of it. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, you can really test the attack, and sometimes you know. I think for these, it's it's very important, and it's something that also Vasilis Kemerlis, who's a co-author uh, and you know the, the originator essentially of this idea, is doing very frequently. So Vasilis has done a bunch of work on on systems hardening and system exploitation, and he has been publishing you know his exploits as well. So that's oh, where no. I think I learned uh, from this school, where I'm trying to kind of also publish all my code as open source, and people can try it out. Yeah, because I, I hate it when I read a read a good white paper and they've just done this amazing thing and then they publish the benchmarks in the white paper and then there's no source code available anywhere. And uh, so that's uh, yeah, and, terrible. And the sad thing here is that for all of this work, because it's not really math, right? So you're not doing you know proofs or something where you just put it on the paper and then somebody can say, oh yeah, that works. A really core contribution is in the engineering. Like if you if you take some of the work that does say you know symbolic execution right, yep. in principle it's a it's a very simple thing, but then actually implementing it and doing it in a way where 
it runs in a reasonable amount of time and with you know good enough performance, it's a completely different discussion. So for a bunch of these works, especially for hardening schemes, like for instance, we we had done a paper where we're trying to do a kernel. It was a kernel hardening scheme for rope essentially. So we're we're doing. Uh, randomization, fine-grained randomization in the kernel, and we were also enforcing mm-hmm. read, uh, uh, read, XOR, execute for okay. the kernel. So there, uh, getting the performance down to one percent is the actual contribution. I mean, you know, you can start mitigating the, overhead, you know, yeah. mitigating uh, everything and kind of instrumenting all the memory reads and saying, okay, is everything looking fine? And then things now run at three hundred percent more. Uh, but if people are actually, you know, suggesting some schemes and then they don't give you the code, at minimum, it doesn't really advance the field because not only you cannot spot like the weaknesses, but it's not very easy for somebody to commit and say, oh, I'm going to spend like six months to develop this from scratch just so that I can get parity and see if I can improve on it. Yeah, it it's totally shoots the user adoption right in the foot there, makes it very hard to adopt, and uh, that's totally. So ever since this paper, have you? I assume you've been doing a lot of security work. What have you been up to since then? So I I had done this a bunch of work on fuzzing, oh, uh, nice. and some of of the work on my PhD was about kind of uh, differential fuzzing, where essentially. I extended the uh, libfuzzer together with a couple of other folks to kind of try and do tests for uh, logic errors in programs. So essentially, mm-hmm. AFL and libfuzzer, they were testing for um, crashes. And I wanted to kind of make a case that all these fuzzers can be retrofitted to target different types of bugs, such as lo- logic bugs. So with oh, Adrian cool. Tang, uh, yeah, who's now is in Singapore and he's doing security research as well, we started this project called uh, NESA, which was a differential fuzzer, where essentially we were, say, taking open SSL, Libre SSL, uh, boring SSL, and we were giving the same functions, the same input, and we were trying to see how they differ. And from the deviations, the behavior, you could tell that, okay, something is wrong because, you know, a certificate is either trusted or untrusted, right? If, yeah. if you have one engine telling you it's, it's valid and another engine telling you it's not valid. And then I tried to kind of expand on this idea to make a case that, you know, you can take the same fuzzing infrastructure that we have and see if you can find like um, performance issues where... You know, you optimize the faster instead of finding a crash to make things slower. And can you find like a, okay, a regular right. expression, denial of service, things like that. Um, and what but did then you I find? S- so, I mean, that was a pretty quick proof of concept research. Uh, we found some, we tried to focus on some, you know, cases of regular expression, denial of service, well-known cases. And we would see that, you know, you actually find these in a black box manner just by trying out values in the engine. Mm-hmm. Um, or we try to see if we can keep like, you know, hash collision cases um, or even simple things like a sorting uh, algorithm, right? Like you have sorting, which is n log n, but can you find cases where you make it to be, you know, uh, n square, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was a very naive system, but it managed to do so. And I kind of also left it at that in the sense that 
you know, nobody was really thinking about this at the time that the phaser could be retrofitted for other things. And a lot of people have kind of continued that work and actually made significant improvements on the space uh, from there. But then after that, I kind of uh, went to kind of more kind of cloud infrastructure security. I had joined uh, Capsulate, which is kind of a startup in New York, and it's doing Linux security. Okay. Uh, it was doing like zero day detection and things like that. And there we were kind of building um, building a product that would basically detect unknown attacks at scale uh, from running in user space. And that was oh, that's cool. pretty, yeah, a pretty cool challenge. And now I'm, I'm now doing program analysis. I've kind of uh, changed uh, back to kind of my original type of work. Um, I, I'm now at Amazon. I'm kind of helping build tools there to, you know, find bugs in the code uh, internally. Like static code analysis or building test yes. systems and stuff like that. Oh, cool! Yeah, static, static, uh, static and dynamic code analysis mainly. And have you have you gotten to use some uh, some code or some uh, practices from the NESA fuzzing project? Um, so that's actually uh, yeah something that I had been thinking about. I was also at the time when we had written the paper, we had talked a bit with Kostya Serebriani, who was like the author of Libfuzzer, about you know the project making it into the mainline libfuzzer kernel uh no, sorry not not kernel the main libfuzzer kind of repo um but also at the time you know a bunch of things were happening and i i'd never found the time to submit a patch oh yeah yeah i think i'm i'm you know it was a pretty weird situation like i was having a kid it was uh, it was a lot of pretty things. bunch of things happening in my life yeah, yeah and yeah. i was like ah uh, I'm not gonna open up a new chapter now. The code is there. Everyone can Go can take it. it and yeah. yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think there's some pretty cool things happening in terms of uh, fuzzing in general now. There's folks who are doing you know translation so that they run things in GPUs. There's uh, fuzzing happening at scale. I think one of the core things we're missing right now is. And I mean, I don't want to throw the, these two kind of cursed words here, but we're we're missing some kind of machine learning assisted, um, you know, intelligence AI. on on how we're testing code, because there is a bunch of patterns that are emerging, and we could really do better, right? I mean, we have this domain level expertise, but when it comes to finding bugs, there are certain patterns that you know we can do better as a as a tooling, uh, as tooling providers to expose them. And we can learn from past issues, past CVs, you know, patterns in code bases um, and things like that. That's cool. Like an AI powered uh, linter almost. Yeah. I mean, the, the one tricky thing, like if you, if you see about kind of running static analysis tools at scale, if you have say thousands of developers, mm -hmm. you want to really be mindful of the time to try as and fix findings. So you want to be very mindful of the false positives and also of making sure that the findings you present are real security issues. Because, you know, if you're analyzing some codes uh, at home, you know, and you're, you're trying to find a bug, you have all the time in the world. But now if you're saying, okay, I'm gonna send my findings to the, to the whole of Microsoft or, you know, to all the developers at Apple or all the developers at uh, AWS, 
uh, now it's a different story because you, you start to think about um, security as actually cost versus benefit. Um, because there, you know, for every finding that your that your tool sends out, somebody will have to sit down, triage it, spend some Both time, money. and that's actual yeah. money. Yeah. So I think that's that's a big challenge there, and there's a lot to learn, right? We have a lot of resources. We have there has been research that's showed that you know people just copy things from Stack Overflow, and then you find the same broken patterns everywhere. So. Linters are kind of nice, and I think there's room for improvement there in the same space, in the sense that you know, your 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 IDE or you know Veeam or Emacs or whatever people are using, um, it it could be smart enough where it would be able to tell, oh, it looks like you're trying to write like a server here, or it looks like you're trying to talk to a database, and I have this kind of common knowledge of bugs from people that try to do similar things and perhaps you know try this snippet here or it could be suggesting things in a security context and not only in terms of best practices and another like attack surface that's open up there is what if we have all these like um, these like secure ways of doing things and everyone's writing code in the same like way like I was looking at I think it was Django or some Python HTTP uh, framework recently and then they were like providing these uh, libraries to talk with like the SQL databases very securely. And then there was a bug in the escape uh, mechanism in the, in these uh, pre-built uh, high-level libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people could basically you know pass uh, exploits uh, that weren't uh, or pass bad input to the SQL database that wasn't properly escaped. And then everyone is all, and then this like practice got approved by uh, by the core team, and and then a lot of people were adopting it. So we're kind of it's kind of a bit scary there when we have secure practices, and then someone finds a bug, and then everyone writes the same type of code. So that's uh, well, yeah. There's a lot of uh, scary things out there. I mean, that's also that's that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? In the sense that, in my mind it's better to have adoption of a widely agreed on practice totally. until people you know, know know better in the sense that you know you have an, a new RFC say you know XML back in the days and there were some cases that people didn't really think of and to some to some extent this has to do with kind of not learning from mistakes at this stage right because for the modern era you have this history of all the security incidents. So at least we should have some experts that are thinking about it from another adversarial perspective. But to a large extent, you, you have some new technology and then there's some corner cases that you're gonna miss. But at least if you enforce a standard, then you can just apply a single fix at a single place. And now suddenly you have this wide mitigation. So to me, we need kind of two things. We need this wide adoption of best practices, whatever these are, so that we can build the automation that checks for these and improves on these. So that you know developers rely less and less on kind of their goodwill and more and more on their tools. And the second is we need kind of orthogonal mechanisms that safeguard us against different exploitation scenarios. So it could be that you know you don't sanitize your your input and there is a bug in whatever 
library is given to you by your, you know, your API. But if you had another mitigation, say at the at the operating system level or at you know the browser level or More low uh, level by some monitor, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think we can start building layers of mitigations uh, wherever it makes sense uh, performance-wise and try to do our best on every different front and um, just improve as, as things come up. Because we do raise the bar, right? Like if you, if you see the security landscape, at least for you know, non-embedded devices security and kind of our regular user space applications, it's, it's not where things used to be. Like that's why a lot of people started turning into kernel exploitation because there were so many mitigations in user space and now you have more and more mitigations added in in a bunch of different layers. So I think there, the bar is raising slowly and steadily. And then of course you have the cases where you do all of these things and then somebody has a post-it note with their password yeah. on <laughs> their computer <laughs> yeah, screen. One, yeah, one, one step failure there. Are you familiar with the, I think they're called the Libsodium uh, project. There's this crypto project that uh, provide uh, secure best practices. Oh, no, I haven't, but I can definitely look it up. I, I, that sounds interesting. But anyhow, I think what they're, because they're kind of touching on the first thing, what you say there, that they're trying to provide secure best practices that have been peer reviewed by other people. So I think okay. uh, writing... Uh, Secure good documentation is a thing they really do good. And I'm not sure the documentation is, is the solution, frankly, in the sense that, you know, there is documentation about not using string copy, but, yeah, but no one people who don't know better. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't really believe in documentation. I believe in compilers and operating systems safeguarding against kind of ignorance and the good thing with linters is that you know if somebody shows it to you as you write code i mean nobody really wants to write bad code right unless you have like Perfect. a malicious insider that wants to introduce a back door so i mean it's the tools that should do better and we should rely on developers to just you know have the the, the good stance of kind of fixing the issue once they're presented with it because there's also the problem of how early in the software development lifecycle a security issue is introduced. Like it's a completely different thing if you're first committing that line of code versus now that line of code is pushed into production, you have customers, you need to keep like, you know, backwards dependency and now you have to send out a patch, you need to make announcements. It's, it's like a completely different story. So if, if we move left, as much as possible in the software development cycle, then not only things are cheaper, but it's also much easier to fix. The kind of thing. I'm not saying yeah. documentation is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm just I'm just saying that it's 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 kind of one basis because you know if you want to read what things do, you you should be able to do so. And good documentation in this sense is critical, but it's it's not as effective as kind of pushing it all the way through. That's, that's what I'm saying. So let's jump into the next segment of the show called Quick Questions, where we get to know you better. What's your favorite drink? Okay. I think it's gin. Oh, nice. Plain, plain gin. Plain gin. Oh. 
When do you feel the most happy in your week? When do you feel that you're peaking on happiness? Oh, definitely now, like spending time with my son, I think. And other than that, playing music. Oh, nice. You play music? Yeah, I used to uh, big time. And now I'm kind of trying to get back to it. Oh, nice. Very nice. What's your favorite outside activity? I did a lot of photography uh, some time ago. So I'm like going out on the street and taking shots of pe people like photographing. Nice. What operating system do you use on your main uh, machine? Uh, right now it's Mac OS X. Uh, and sadly, I have like a Windows bootcamp because my sound card drivers are no longer supported mm -hmm. uh, in the latest OS X. But other than that, I was mainly a Debian person, kind of thinking Alpine for the next uh, Linux distribution. But I was thinking that my next laptop will be Windows. So I'm not sure what you can make out of all this comp, you know, messed up answer. You never know. How does your workflow look like? Do you have a special uh, way of allocating your hours? Do you do, do you sit down and do eight hours in one piece? Or do you like oh, do a bit of work in the morning and then at light? And how does it work? So now that I'm having, not, you know, after having a kid and working from home with COVID with a two-year-old, it's kind of, you know, you work when you can. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I try to, kind of allocate continuous blocks of time. I, f I find it very hard to concentrate. You know, if I stop every 30 minutes or so, it usually takes me like 30 to 40 minutes just to get in. In the mood. Like in the zone, yeah. What's your favorite song or band? Oh, that's, that really changes from time to time. I don't think I can answer with a with a straight uh, answer for how, how about my this? whole life. I think this period uh, I'm... What, what band would you be... If they came to town, what band would you like really want to see live? All sorts of bands. I mean, I'm I'm very deep into kind of Arctic Monkeys, Tame Impala, this sort of style of music. But I'm also into classical music. I'm also into kind of jazz. So it really, it's a lot of things. Pick your poison, yeah. What's your favorite IDE or text editor? Oh, Vim, hands down. Awesome. And I have my, my config... Uh, on on uh, GitHub for everyone to use if if you'd like to. Cool. We'll, we'll yeah, I think uh, I think there's there's nothing beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it runs on like every machine. I was so. even convincing people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was at some point I was in Microsoft Research in in the UK and I was doing some 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 work there with a networking group and I. I was even using Vim in, in Microsoft and I was convincing a couple of people to, to do so. So <laughs> Yeah. Come to the I mean it's just convenient, time. right? You have your Yeah, you have your full ID wherever you go, you just like do a git clone and then you install the thing and you're ready to go. You don't need to set up anything. You you log in into a random server, you can have your full uh, editor there. And yeah, I'm not sure about this other thing called Emacs. I've never, <laughs> never dipped my toes on that side. That's good to hear. Good to hear. What's your favorite karaoke song? What uh, song would you most uh, want to sing at karaoke? I think it's usually Eminem. 
like um, the real Slim Shady or something corny like that. <laughs> nice, nice. What's the last meal you cooked? Last meal I cooked, I did like a carbonara with like pasta carbonara with kind of like the traditional like eggs and, um, you know, pork cheek and stuff like that. Nice. What's the latest interesting proof of exploit concept or vulnerability that you read about and thought, wow, this is smart and an innovative way? Ah, that's a good question. I haven't been looking at many POCs lately. I think there is a couple of XS, stored XSSs I've been looking into and kind of like second order vulnerabilities where, um, you know, you store something in the database and then, you know, it gets executed and then you download like a PDF that's kind of has an XSS in it or something like that. I'm not sure I can discuss much more about this thing, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of diving into the XSS territory this, this period of my life. Nice. Hopefully it will come some good... Uh some good research out of that. I mean, the F can do a whole lot of things, right? They can like download files and stuff like that. If you they have an entire macro, I think to it. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty complex uh, format. And there has been some nice work on PDF fuzzing as well, like fuzzing editors and parsers and things like that. Nice, nice. Uh, what technology are you ex- most excited about that's going to be released or already got released that you want to see either improved or being invented? So I'm pretty excited about the whole work that has been happening the past years around solvers and kind of the formal methods communities. I think they're, mm. they're making great progress there. And I'm kind of excited to kind of build more tools using this sort of, you know, as new, new SMT capabilities. That's cool. Yeah, I think we should move towards kind of more formal, formal methods where possible. Like if we can even prove, you know, certain things that, you know, you have a config and the config uh, is not, you know, leaving your network more exposed than what it, it originally was. Like even if you can check, you know, these small things or if you can do something on like driver verification, that's still a big win because you, you can make sure you eliminate, you know, a whole class of issues. Yeah, yeah, totally. Have you, have you used any any of that in production or played around with that? Yeah, uh, and there was a friend and colleague of mine, uh, George Argyros, we had started doing a pro for kind of PHP uh, symbolic execution and uh, like work there. And uh, there's a lot of work done in, in a bunch of the big companies right now around this space uh, and also in the open source community clearly around like frameworks either for Java like Suit or, you know, other symbolic execution frameworks, data analysis frameworks. And then on top of these, you kind of add more and more functionality. Uh, And I've also played a bit with some of the Microsoft technologies for like doing kind of formal verification where, you know, you write your proof and then the program doesn't even compile if if anything is broken. Oh, yeah. you know, There's a couple of uh, cool programming languages that use that. There's one programming language called CUX, I think, or CUQ that has okay. uh, formal proofs. And uh, yeah, I, I think, CUQ, like CUQ yeah. is kind of a very well-known framework for this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's pretty. It's, it's not. I wouldn't say it's the easiest thing to use, but it's definitely one of the most widely used things. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting uh, field using formal proofs, but uh, it's also very hard. So I I think unless it becomes more high level, it's gonna be hard to see a, a wide user adoption of it. Yeah, perhaps that's where we we can do better. Like we could say, you know, we could have tools that you know users high, write these high level um, kind of guidelines. For instance, you know, you write something like. I don't want any user input, user control input reaching this function. And then you can have this, this invariant enforced by, you know, oh, your yeah, compiler, cool. your, your tool chain. So there is, there is a, there's lots of lines of work that are trying to build, you know, this sort of easy automation where, you know, developers just need to kind of write their high level directives and then the framework takes care of the rest with all the limitations that are in place clearly, right? Because they're, one of the big problems in these cases is dependencies on, on other technologies. So for instance, you know, you have a web application, now you store something in the database, there's a bunch of operations happening in the database and what comes out of it, you know, you, you put some input, but then what comes out uh, might not be the same thing. And how do you keep track of that state or, you know this whole this whole dependency problem is not trivial is there any tools doing that right now that you're aware of or is there a uh, yeah room for innovation yeah i'm not there? sure there is there's lots of room for innovation for sure but i i know of a bunch of works that are kind of doing this in in one form or another but it's usually on on pretty small scale like mm. You know, you check for a very specific thing, for a very specific language, for a very specific type of problem. All right, all right. So it needs to be scaled up then. So I think we got through all of the questions I had. Is there anything we've forgotten that uh, you think we should highlight? Not really. I'd say it would be nice for folks to kind of try and explore things and break stuff and kind of dive into doing uh so i'm happy i'm always available if you know anyone wants to reach out and ask a question on on something or uh code for things that might not be available all the thing i pretty much have most of the research available and how do they but yeah thank you so much i mean so you can always reach me by email i think on twitter I'm not very active on Twitter. Let me see what my Twitter handle is. It's probably Theophilus PE. Yeah, it's my first name, Theophilus PE. We'll have it linked in the uh, yeah. My yeah, I was my Twitter is kind of half uh security, half Greek politics, but I very, very rarely tweet. But um I generally follow the trends, you know, every now and then. I try to kind of stay away from most social media platforms. That's nice. Not get sucked into it. Yeah. Yeah. There's more to life, so to say. People can follow you on those social medias. And uh, so, yeah, what does the future hold? Is there any fun security research that you're currently working on? Or uh... um, I have a couple of projects that I wanted to kind of work on. It was mainly around kind of um, obfuscation. So kind of trying to do like impossible disassembly passes in the compiler uh, just for fun. And then I'm kind of working on taint analysis a bit on the side, but I haven't really touched on these for quite some time. 
And then I'm doing some work which is not really security related, but it's mainly around like music and visualizations and things like that, where I'm using kind of this framework called uh, P3 and you can do a bunch of like fancy user interfaces for interacting with, you know, videos or music. And I'm kind of uh, doing some work there. Oh, cool. That's awesome. So I really enjoyed this episode and I really enjoyed talking with you. You were uh, sure a sharp mind in the field, so to say. It was great talking with you and uh, I learned things. I hope our listeners things, uh, learned things. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on Security Headline. And I hope you will come on again when you find some new cool, maybe some new cool PDF things. Who knows? Yeah. Definitely. And thank you so much for the invitation and thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, It was great uh, being here. Awesome. Take care, man. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.